what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. I think a lot of people, especially regarding fitness and pelvic floor therapy, feel like they need to be on top of it all the time. Like it's an all or nothing thing. And it is not all or nothing. Welcome back to Meet Bridget, a show that dives into the often untold teenage and young adult experiences of successful women heralding from diverse backgrounds and working in a myriad of different careers. This show is an extension of a confidence coaching service for young women that we call Bridget. I'm Kashia Rosenberg, and I co-host this show alongside my best friend, Asha Gabriel. Today, I'm doing another solo show with a very, very special guest. I'm really excited to bring her to the podcast. Dr. May Hughes is a mother, wife, pelvic floor physical therapist, and a fitness fiend who's passionate about helping women feel strong during every part of their pregnancy and prepared for a healthy postpartum journey. I started following Dr. Hughes on Instagram a few years ago, and when I got pregnant, I took her day-by-day course, Movement Through Pregnancy, all through my second and third trimesters. As an educator and healthcare provider myself, I was and continue to be so impressed by her level of knowledge, her practicality, and the applications for her work, you know, for women everywhere and in every stage of being. It's really exciting to have her here. Her success and popularity is no accident, and I'm really thrilled to be bringing her onto the show to share her story. So welcome, Dr. Hughes. Thank you, Kishi. That was such a nice, warm welcome. I so appreciate that. It's very genuine. Um, I wanted to geek out when we, you know, I saw your face pop up onto the screen because I truly recommend your content and your classes to everyone I know, pregnant, postpartum. I have a blog that I don't really, I don't, it's not like a big blog or anything, but I share it with everyone because Thank you. your, your courses are really, really knowledgeable. They're just great. They're applicable. You can do them from home. It, and of note, this is really exciting to share. I think everyone has a very different experience birthing. But I will say that doing your program for full two trimesters, I, one, used the peanut ball in the, in the delivery <laughs> room. And two, when it was time to push, I only had to push for 30 minutes. And I, I didn't have I didn't have diastasis recti after. And I really attribute that to you. So it was awesome. That makes me so happy to hear. Yeah, well, we'll get more into it. But I want to start talking about young May, where you're from, your background, and how you got started on this beautiful green earth. (laughs) Yeah. So I was born and raised in the same town that I grew up in my whole life for 18 years. I'm actually from New Jersey. A lot of people don't realize that because I have been in Nashville, which is where I am now for so long, um, like went to school here for college and my doctorate degree. And so people always think I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, but I'm actually from New Jersey. And I like actually was born at the hospital, like five minutes away from my house. So it was was super sweet. My husband's an East Coaster too. It's very like. (laughs) Very prideful of where we come from. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Like very humble and quiet about it. But then he's like, oh, Long Island, strong, New York. And I'm like, 
Yeah, yeah we get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so New Jersey, what was young May like? Yes, young May. So I have uh, three siblings. I'm one of four and the youngest. So I grew up just with my siblings. Like we were our own little pack almost because there were, there's four of us within six years. So we're all really close in age. So we were kind of just like a little pack just playing with each other. And we kind of make a joke sometimes that like, maybe we didn't have that many other friends because we just were our own <laughs> friends. And we were all super active, very, very active. My brother is the oldest and there's three sisters. And he always said, it's like I grew up with three other brothers because yeah. we were all playing sports all the time outside. And sure enough, like eight like young boys too. It was so funny. We would have to like label our foods in the fridge because we would take each other's food. And that was such a big just deal. Just ravenous. Yes. <laughs> we're always playing so outside. hungry all the time. Yeah, from being outside. All played sports. I played volleyball and softball. And then actually, I never know. It's, I guess this is a sport. Horseback riding. I did for the long yeah. period of time from like age three or whenever the youngest time is that they'll allow you to be on a horse um, right up until I went to college. And then, you know, college, it's really hard to continue with horseback riding. <laughs> I just want to point out with horseback riding, I went to high school in Agua Dulce, which is like horse country of Los Angeles mm-hmm. County for three years. And and one of my close friends, like everyone out there grows up around horses. And yeah. so I went with one of my close friends one day and she taught me how to post, which is like, you know, learning how to like sit up yeah. and like get up and sit down when the horse is galloping. Let me tell you, my entire lower body was on fire (laughs) the next day. So it really is a sport. Like your low, like your core has to be on point, like your legs. It totally tracks for me when I look at you. Yeah. And it's so funny because naturally when I went to college because of like just an athletic background, I gravitated towards the athletes being friendly, Mm -hmm. you know, friends with them. Almost all my friends are athletes. And so the joke was like, oh, May actually, you know, played a sport at college, even though I didn't. Um, <laughs> and everyone thinks I played soccer because my legs are so, like, muscular strong. and strong. <laughs> I'm like, that's from years and years and years of horseback riding and, like, not falling off of a horse. Your legs are gripping on for dear life. And yeah. So I really attribute that. I mean, you know, volleyball, there's a lot of jumping too, but the horseback riding is the most consistent thing I did. And, yeah, leg strength is key. Wow. So you have been really passionate. I mean, I don't even know as a young child, like mm-hmm. if we realize like the things that we love so much are the things that we are passionate about. It sounds like there is this theme of you loving being outdoors and needing movement in mm-hmm. your life. Did you always have the sense that you wanted to do something physical in your career? How did you sort of like start guiding yourself toward the path of becoming who you are? Yeah. When I was going through, I guess, kind of my entire life, I always said I wanted to be veterinarian. There was this little closet underneath our stairs, and I would make it my little veterinarian practice and, like, play vet and, like, had all these little medicines for my stuffed animals and that sort of thing. And then when I went to college, I actually, like, did the pre-vet track, started that, and worked as a veterinarian technician all throughout college. So medicine was kind of like always something that I wanted to do. My father was a physician and so still is a practicing physician. And so I think medicine in general is something that I 
was exposed to at a young age. But for like the physical therapy part, I didn't necessarily realize that I wanted to be a physical therapist until like the very end of college. Like that almost mm-hmm. like where everyone has a like mid-college crisis of like, is my major what I really wanted to be? Like, do I yeah. really want to be doing this? And I can talk a little bit more about that later. But when I reflect on, okay, when I was younger, how did, you know, did, did physical therapy ever play a role? And yeah, it was huge. One of my sisters, um, one of my older sister has autism. And so the reason we started horseback riding was for therapeutic riding. That's actually a form of physical therapy called hippotherapy to help work on like postural control for individuals who have autism. My sister had low muscle tone. And so getting on a horse really helps like stimulate the motion of walking. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you can work on like hand-eye coordination and balance. And so that was my first exposure to like physical therapy without even realizing it. It was just, for me, it was fun. Like I wanted to be there with my sister and loved horses. And so we would end up being in a ring together and riding, even though I wasn't necessarily there for the hippotherapy. And so like, when I think back on them, like, oh, actually I was exposed to physical therapy <laughs> when I was like three or four and just didn't realize it, that I loved, it was like combination of like animals and movement and all of that. I didn't go into hippotherapy specifically because I just really love more like fitness. But I guess that was my true first experience of really enjoying like helping people overcome pain or like limitations. Did you understand? Because you said you started pretty young when you uh, were horseback riding. It was your older sister Mm because you're the youngest of four, which I'm I'm the oldest of four, so I'm like thinking about my little brother who's a menace, but I love him. (laughs) But the roles are really different, like Mm -hmm. from oldest to youngest. Asha and I talk about it all the time. It's like everyone has this slightly tweaked mentality, you know, based on where you fall in the line of siblings. Yeah. It's really cool that you got to do this with your older sister. Did you have an understanding at the time that she was doing this as something therapeutic to help her? And then my follow-up question to that is, if you did, were you able to kind of listen to like how they were coaching her and, you know, what what those sessions were like? Yeah. I don't think there's ever been a period of, at least I don't have a memory of not knowing that my sister had autism. It's just something I always grew up with and I never thought it was weird you know I never I never thought it was abnormal it was my normal like that is yeah that is just the way it is which I'm so thankful for because it just really allowed me to have like a broad view of the world at a very very young age I don't know if I ever was like oh they're doing this to help x y and z I think I just knew and my sister loved it and it was something that she could do like in a physical manner and it just made her so happy. And I think that's what I realized is like, oh, this is, you know, she wasn't necessarily able to participate in some of like the hand eye coordination contact sports that we were doing, mm-hmm. like basketball or softball or something like this. It was important for me that she was able to do something. And so, yeah, I don't know if I necessarily like put together the dots of, oh, while posting she's working on lower body strength or something like yeah, that yeah um, yeah for me it was just enabling her to do a physical activity that she enjoyed I really enjoy hearing about this and I ask my question because 
and we'll probably get more into this later on, but you're really, one of the things I love about you and your content is that you're very, very articulate and you're also, you come across as being very emotionally intelligent, which is so weird because I'm, you know, we're looking at your content through a screen. Mm -hmm. So like your courses are online and digital and your content on Instagram is obviously on Instagram. So how could I be saying that somebody through a screen is emotionally intelligent? Well, the way that you educate people is very, very thoughtful and very thorough. And I think a lot of people, especially like in the landscape of today and medicine and the craziness of the pandemic, we forget that like human touch and like being gentle with the way you approach things and the way you communicate things is so, so important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that was really impactful for me. I had a year of loss where we had several miscarriages and I had like a crisis of like physical identity because I had a like new autoimmune diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like as one of your, your followers, I was like, this is, this is really impactful information. And it was like, obviously I'm going to download this. So I'm, it's really interesting to hear that you had a really early exposure to a similar type of therapy in that, you know, you, you got to be in a physical arena with somebody you love and you get, got to like secondhand experience somebody like coaching her through things that would really help her and be game changers for her throughout her life. Like you talk about the horse, horseback riding being as significant as, as walking and like Mm -hmm. adjusting posture and and those things are just things that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's really, it's, that's such a cool experience that you got to have. I really want to dive into more stuff, but mm-hmm. I, I want to save it for later because there's so many nuggets here. So tell us a little bit more. You, you said your dad was a physician. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your mom and like your other siblings and, you know, how life was sort of like in the Hughes world before you transitioned and went off into college? Yes. My mother is probably the most influential person in my life. I mean, um, my father worked a lot, so wasn't, you know, able to be super heavily involved. So my mom just like took over everything. She managed four children under the age of six. She had four cesarean deliveries, which now like as a pelvic floor therapist who <laughs> rehabs women from those. That's huge. I'm like, yeah. how did she, like, if I'm the youngest, there were three older than me, like toddlers, and she had a C-section with me. How did she care for three toddlers plus a newborn and herself? Like, she is super woman. I didn't even think about that, actually. <laughs> oh, yes. my God. I was thinking about the physical, like, the physical rehabilitation. And then I'm like, you're like three toddlers on top of it. You're right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's in. I still to this day like I don't know how she does it she's the strongest woman in my life and that I know shout out to moms shout everywhere. It, shout <laughs> out to moms everywhere yeah especially yeah if you are having like your second c-section and you have to care for a toddler or another child like you are so strong and I'm so proud of you yes. um yeah so my mom was like I said she did everything for us her full-time job was taking care of four children at one point, you know, we were just like two full-time jobs. It's like, yeah, it's, four, it's four, four if you jobs. have four kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, especially with having a child with special needs, you know, going to special occupational therapy appointments, speech therapy appointments, different school, like 
I basically, as the youngest, grew up in a car because my mom was always driving us all around, but she was always there. And that's what's so impressive to me is there were hardly times, at least not that I remember, of like carpooling and stuff like that. I just truly, I don't know if she had clones of herself. I don't know how she did it, but she was always at games, like always. She was just everywhere. She was amazing. Ode to my mom, I guess. It's becoming. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Life in, so my main name is actually Chef. Um, life in a chef household was fun, chaotic, as you can imagine, with four children. They're four siblings. But yeah, my mom is probably the most influential person and really taught me how to be like present as a mom and just taught me how to care for people in general. You talked about kind of, you said that, you know, the way that I communicate things or, like emotional intelligence, intelligence and things like that. I think I definitely got from my mom. She's always very caring. She's that like person who would remember one of her friend's birthdays and like send them flowers. She's just like always on top of that sort of stuff. And so she, I think she just taught me how to be a very thoughtful, caring, understanding person, not like saying this is what you need to do, but just through action, you know, through yeah. observation. Yeah. As the youngest, did you feel like with the the chaos of just, you know, so many different personalities mm-hmm. that you kind of had to like fight for the floor ever? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you had to like really understand everybody's different personalities and interject like when it was, you know, the right time kind of thing. Yes. That honestly, we're all in our late 20s, early 30s. And I still feel that way yeah. <laughs> when I'm, we all get together. <laughs> it's, it's so funny when you get back with your family, like those childhood dynamics come right back. And so on my yeah. own, I am able to speak up and do X, Y, and Z and run my own business. And then when I get back with my siblings, I'm just like calm, quiet, cool, collected, don't really like speak up. Because when you're the youngest, you kind of just have to go with the flow. And yeah. so my mom says I was the most chill baby, the most chill child, because there was really no other option. Like you had, yeah. I was basically a toy child for my siblings growing up. Like, <laughs> She said one time I was in like six different outfits because every one of my siblings wanted to put me in a different outfit. They all wanted to feed me. And like I would get 10 meals a day because yeah. I, I just had to go with the flow. Yeah. This is so fun for me to hear because, again, I'm thinking about my little brother who just turned 18 and there's actually 15 years between us. Mm-hmm. And it it's the same. It's the same thing. So I'm like my experience as the oldest child is like the rudder of the chaos you know it's like trying to like be like the good example and Mm -hmm. stuff and like never get in trouble because somebody's watching you kind of thing whereas like my brother and sister are a little bit more free to like you know be flamboyant with like their needs and Mm -hmm. wants and like um but then the youngest I like we always kind of joke that he like might be flying under the radar just because he's like so like he's such a good kid you know Mm -hmm. but he is like even as a baby he was like hyper and like fun and like outgoing Mm -hmm. but I'm like watching you like transition into adulthood like I know you have secrets like what's going on (laughs) and because you're like as the youngest you get to kind of like not just not really like fly under the radar because I think everyone is like obsessed with you like you're the baby like you're the the, the darling the sweetheart but then they're also like fourth in line mm-hmm. like <laughs> so yeah also my parents were like so you can just see the trajectory of like how through parenthood you're like oh wow like with David you guys were really mm-hmm. really um gentle <laughs> yes my brother who's the oldest 
says stuff like that all the time. So he would very much emphasize your experience being the oldest because when he wasn't allowed to eat potato chips until he was, I don't know. I don't know the exact year, but like it was a long time. And then there was Mm -hmm. me, the youngest, like I grew up on potato chips and like McDonald's and all the sort of foods that, you know, with each child, it just kind of. It's just like a new concession yep. each child because you're just kind of like, okay, okay. Like now as a parent, I get it. Like with my son, I'm like, we really came out of the gate strong. Yeah. Like we're like organic. We're going to do the best we mm-hmm. can. And I'm like in my head, I'm like, okay, if we have more babies, I don't know how long I can keep this up. Right. Yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> so I very yeah. much understand why that just like slow allowance yeah. of more freedom happens yeah. with more children. Yeah. All right. So your mom and your dad sound like incredible people. You obviously had two really great examples. Like you had the strong and and stoic, I'm assuming dad, who's like, you know, the head of the household working a lot, you know, teaching you guys like values of drive and, and, you know, creating a career and, and stability and everything. And then you have your mom who's like this vision of strength and softness all in one where she's keeping things tightly organized at home, Mm -hmm. which I have so much appreciation for now as an adult. So you went off to college. You had an idea that you wanted to be in medicine Mm -hmm. because I'm assuming you had these examples and it was something that you, you really felt passionate about, you know, wanting to be a veterinarian. What was the experience of your like midlife or mid-college crisis? Because I don't think people talk about that enough. Actually, it's the first time we've ever had a guest bring that up in those words. And so I really want to get into that. Like what happened where you were like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. In college, from all four years, I had multiple jobs. So I was always like providing for myself and getting more experience and things like that. So one of my jobs, other than being a veterinarian technician, because you need hours to apply to veterinarian school, like working in a vet. So I was a veterinarian technician, but then I also worked. And the first two years I volunteered in the athletic department at Vanderbilt and worked with all of their you know, D1 athletes, mainly football the first couple of years. And that was just something that I got into because the sister closest in age to me who does not have autism, went to Vanderbilt as well, where I went to school and I followed her and wanted to go. And so she was a senior when I was a freshman and she was working in the football office because she wanted to get into sports. So naturally I was like, sure, I'll volunteer in the football office as well. And I thought really nothing of it. The first few years I was just going along with my pre-med, pre-vet requirements, volunteering in the athletic department, but also getting paid as a veterinary technician and then also a bio TA. So I was TA for some of my science classes. And after, I think it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year when I was working as a veterinary technician over the summer, cause I would always stay in Nashville every summer and like do summer school or courses or whatever. And I found myself getting more excited to help out in the athletic department than I was to help out at the veterinarian clinic. And that just kept happening. I was like, it just started to grow. Like, it's like, oh, I don't want to like go to that. I wish I was going to the athletic department and you know, helping out with them. Quick question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. 
Is this because animals can't speak and humans can? Were you like that's exactly what like, I was about to say. Thriving I, off. I think I'm just people. <laughs> I think that's truly what it was. I'm such a people person. I love talking. I clearly love educating and being able to talk. And I think I love animals so much. Grew up with animals, horse out riding. And so I thought, oh, I'll be a good vet. But I really missed people. I miss talking to people. Yeah. And so I think that's where the switch came to my sophomore and junior year. It was like, I want to help people. And some people ask me, well, why didn't you switch to going to medical school? Technically at Vanderbilt, any pre anything for science is all pre-med. So like, mm-hmm. even if you go to physical therapy school, veterinary school, you all take a pre-med course. So it didn't matter. I was already in pre-med classes, but a lot of people ask me, why didn't you go to medical school? And I think it's because I knew the short amount of time physicians get with their patients just mm-hmm. from experience and watching yeah, it growing with up. your dad and mm-hmm. I wanted more I like time and I like to be able to see something through and like to see how things end up and that's not to say that physicians never see you know when they perform surgery they get to do follow-ups and see their patients get better and like really really help them but they don't always get that in-between interaction they don't get like yeah. lengthy periods of time with people Plus, I love fitness. I love staying active yeah. and being fit. And so that's kind of where physical therapy is like, well, that seems like it might be the perfect combination of everything. I get lots of time with people and I get to teach them how to you know, be fit and return to whatever activity they want. And I get to talk to people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it's such a good point. I am the nursing director for a practice mm-hmm. for a concierge business. One of the reasons that I made kind of like this natural jump into that world was because of the time spent with patients and getting to see follow through. Mm -hmm. I had been in the ER for several years, which is its own amazing world, Mm -hmm. but it's a really good example of how clinicians are at the mercy of like the system in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. where it's just, you can't, even the greatest doctors in the world, like they do not have like the hours in the day to like be able to spend more than 20 minutes with the patient because of sheer volume. Right. And then follow through is like, that was one of the things I really missed when I was working in the ER is like, you get people that come in one time and you're like, oh man, I wonder how that person's broken arm is doing. Or I, I had a kid who like, he had gone down and needed CPR and he was in the hospital for a month because thankfully he survived. But Mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes into like post CPR care. And so, you know, I check in while he was in the hospital, like track his trajectory. But after that, you're like, oh man, I wonder how he's doing, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can't do that. So it's really, it's such a good point you make about just you know, if you're the type of person that wants that, that kind of relationship with your patients that, you know, it's a little bit different Mm -hmm. in different areas of medicine. Exactly. And not everyone wants that. So yeah, I'm glad. Some people want to just like high five. Yeah. They want to be high (laughs) five or they want to like quickly fix a problem or, you know, very more like technical for surgery and things like that. I'm so glad those people exist. I just realized I'm not one of them. Yes. Yes. you made this transition Mm -hmm. based off of like your experiences of like just missing people and realizing that about yourself. Mm -hmm. And was it an easy switch to make? Did you like have any pushback from like either internally or like from your parents or from the school or anything? Or was it just like, you know what, 
I, I'm going to go for this. Yeah, no real pushback. My mom was always kind of like, hey, whatever you want to do, like, I'll help yeah. you get there. Um, if you want potato chips? Yeah, you can have chips. Them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't really any pushback. The only thing that was difficult was, I mean, like I said, the pre-med courses were all the same anyway, so I didn't have to worry about that. You have to get hours, though, now in physical therapy clinics, like all of my thousands of hours working yeah. in a veterinarian clinic out the window and they want to see hours of you working in a physical therapy clinic before you apply to PT school so I just remember scrambling really quickly to try and like find places where I could do my hours that weren't already booked and then also just not a lot of students from Vanderbilt go to physical therapy school it's a very big pre-med school as you can imagine Vanderbilt Hospital Mm -hmm. is a huge hospital system here and very like highly renowned research institute so a lot of people are pre-med and want to go to medical school so there wasn't a lot of help Mm -hmm. from like career guidance from Vanderbilt's perspective so I kind of just had to figure it all out on my own and that's why I also always take calls from students trying to figure out especially if they're from Vanderbilt because they'll find me and they're like you're one of the only people we know who like went to Vanderbilt and and became a physical therapist so I just want to help them navigate yeah. that road. Um, but yeah, there wasn't a lot of pushback and it wasn't super hard to make the transition other than getting those hours in. And then I wrote my essay on my reflection of realizing, oh, I wanted to become a physical therapist because of, oh, like I just told you my experience of missing people. And then I actually mm-hmm. had experience growing up with hypotherapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it wasn't too, wasn't too difficult to make the change, thankfully. When you do physical therapy hours in nursing school, like they make you go through different categories of nursing to have, you know, an abundance of different experiences. Mm -hmm. I imagine that PT school is similar in that like when you do your hours and you do your clinicals or your your didactics, they have you, Mm -hmm. you know, immerse yourself in different experiences. So did you actually get to like you know, try being a hypotherapist, try being like a pelvic floor PT. Did you get to go into those other subspecialties to like figure out what you wanted to do? Yes. They require you to do at least three different subspecialties for your clinicals. So you get, we have four clinicals or no, five, five clinicals where I went to school at Belmont. So Belmont University is right down the street from Vanderbilt. Actually, I don't even know if it's University Belmont. I think, I think it was a college and now it's a university. I don't understand how that whole thing yeah. works. I mean, that's what happened to my school. It was like college all through. The, yeah. I mean, it's a private college, but like, and then all of a sudden they were like, by the way, we're university, university. now. And I'm I was like, like, all right. Okay, cool. I don't <laughs> understand it. Um, it's right down the street from Vanderbilt. It's like truly on the same road. Yeah. So I didn't go far. They require you to do at least three different types of rotations. And then like one of them you get to pick. And interestingly enough, I never did a pelvic floor clinical rotation. It wasn't really on my mind. I was taking... Did it even exist? It did. It definitely did. I feel like the way it was exposed to us in PT school, which is not much, we had two lectures out of three full years, like summers, on pelvic floor physical therapy. That was it. The lectures were given from a sense of kind of the old school way of thinking of a lot of like kegels and things like that not the approach mm-hmm. that I take like full body fitness so didn't do any clinical rotations in public floor therapy even though they were offered it's just the way that it was presented to us was not 
what I wanted. They didn't even mention pregnant mm-hmm. or postpartum women, which is crazy to me. That's why I asked because I feel like this this world of being kind and open to pregnancy mm-hmm. and supportive to pregnancy and postpartum like is really just now emerging. And like I've been practicing medicine for this is crazy like over 10 years now. Uh-huh. And to never hear about that like yeah. you know in any rotation and any time spent on like perinatal floors and mm-hmm. like going through pregnancy myself it's like I could kind of see it when we had my son last year like Cedars was like oh okay like here's here's some suggestions some friendly suggestions mm-hmm. that will kind of like asterisk at the bottom but I'm like ah, still not where you don't really hear about it, needs it. To be. Yeah. yeah my favorite like rotation was in sports because that's what I thought I wanted to do working in the athletic department at Vanderbilt and I actually did my residency so you can in part of physical therapy school like post-doctorate so everyone graduates with their doctorate now and then you can also do residencies if you want to specialize and I actually did my residency in sports because I was so like dead set on doing that but it was in residency that I had like a mid-residency crisis being like wait you know I had a couple experiences where I got to help some young female athletes through, I mean, I couldn't help them because I wasn't a pelvic floor therapist, but they confided in me like, hey, I'm having like pain with intercourse or, hey, I'm actually like leaking during this run. Like, is this normal? Like, what do I do? And I felt like I didn't have the answers for them. And that's kind of where it started on my path of, okay, interesting. I want to actually be able to treat this because I'm having a hard time even finding help for these women. So clearly we need more practitioners who specialize in the pelvic floor and it was so it didn't even start with pregnant and postpartum women it started with young athletes you know like cross-country runners that's actually kind of where a lot of my initial exposure to pelvic floor therapy came from was from a lot of you know, college athletes who are having these issues and didn't know what to do what to say who to get help from it was embarrassing yeah yeah I mean, I think one of the things, too, and I was just thinking about it as you were talking, you know, you think about pelvic floor PT being really geared toward, I would think is the obvious, like somebody whose belly is really stretching out Mm -hmm. and is going to have a baby. And so like women need to learn how to do Kegels to keep things up. But I think really that thought process dismisses the full picture, which Mm -hmm. is that your core, your trunk is not like a round tube. It's like this encapsulation Mm -hmm. of your body. And so that includes your pelvic floor Mm -hmm. as like it is the floor to your your trunk. Like (laughs) you need to have a floor. Otherwise you're just falling through. Mm -hmm. Like and so everyone has a pelvic floor, Mm -hmm. men, women, any anyone in between, any human walking this earth has a pelvic pelvic floor floor, and it needs to be taken care of. Totally (laughs) does. So yeah, I think the reason why I didn't initially gravitate towards pelvic floor therapy and PT school is because it seems so isolated. Like if you're working yeah. with pelvic floor patients, you're only doing that. And then kind of where I love how it's going now, pelvic floor therapy is starting to what it should be like orthopedic and sports health is pelvic health. Like the pelvic floor, are just muscles in your body. It would be like ignoring the biceps. Right. When you were doing you know, full body treatment, you just like, oh, I don't treat the biceps. No, like, you treat the full body. So that's kind of right. The approach I take is huge, like orthopedic sports background. I did I'm the strength conditioning coach as well. That was part of my training was creating 
strength programs for like division one and some professional athletes as well. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of just like merged the two of, okay, one shouldn't be exclusive to the other and pelvic floor therapy should incorporate really the full body because everything affects the pelvic floor, even, you know, your rib cage, if you have poor posture, that can affect your pressure in your belly and your pelvic floor. So like, it's just a merging of the two. Yeah, And that's what I really, really enjoy is that I can kind of not just focus on the pelvic floor, but incorporate pelvic floor therapy into full body rehab and strengthening. I really like how you worded that and how you think about it. Like, it's kind of like saying like, I'm a shoulder doctor, but I don't look at anyone's bicep. Like that would be crazy because it's everything is attached. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking about like the times where I've struggled with pelvic floor strength. And it's like postpartum, if you cough or sneeze, it's like, you're like, uh oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I need to like learn how to re-engage that part of my body. And it's it's a good reminder because when you cough or sneeze, like you're coughing and sneezing with your upper body, mm-hmm. like you're coughing and sneezing with your upper respiratory system, your chest, your lungs. But like, look, it still affects your pelvic floor yeah. because that's that's the other component of it. it. It's all attached and it all speaks and it, it's all one working system. So mm-hmm. I'm obviously like a huge believer in what you do because it's real. But going back, this type of medicine and this way of practicing and bringing things back full circle, I feel like is it's not novice, but it's like becoming pop, you know, mm-hmm. which is really cool because, you know, the things that are important should be more popular. Yeah. Do you feel like you are like one of the pioneers in that area or do you like listen out for the new best modalities of treatment? Like, is there like a, a world for you to like understand which way you're going or do you just have like really good intuition about this? I would say it's definitely newer to really take an orthopedic full body approach to the pelvic floor and really treat the pelvic floor as like any other muscle in your body. It needs to contract. It needs to relax. It can get tight. It can get weak. There are a couple of physical therapists who I really look up to who really are ingrained in like orthopedic is pelvic health type of world, but there are really not many out there. I mean, I still get messages all the time. A lot of my patients are I mean, it's kind of changing because now people know me and they'll just directly come to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But at first I was someone's like second or third attempt at pelvic floor therapy because they had gone to other pelvic floor therapists and who maybe didn't have as recent knowledge or, or kind of like stuck in the old way of thinking about pelvic floor therapy. And they'd say, I wasn't getting better. Like all I did Mm -hmm. was lay on the table and maybe they did an internal like release of the pelvic floor muscle and just have me do some like kegels or some like very basic core strengthening exercises but never got back to what they loved which was I don't know running or lifting or hiking or whatnot there wasn't a lot of people doing that and so that's why I was someone like second or third referral because it would take them a long time to like keep doing their research and find someone like I said now it's not that case at all where people just see things on like my social media and they're like, okay, I'm going to do it right the first time Um, and Uh save themselves a lot of money and time. But yeah, it's definitely, there's still not a lot of us out there. And I see, like I said, in my messages, like on Instagram or emails, I'll get people are like, 
but I've tried pelvic floor therapy and like it hasn't worked. And so then I kind of, without trying to give them full medical advice, I'll ask some probing questions to make them reflect on their physical therapy experience. Experience, yeah. yeah. Be like, so what did a typical appointment look like for you? Were did you ever get back to any of the activities? that you like to do within therapy. Like if you like mm-hmm. to back squat, did they ever have you do that in the clinic and watch you do that and look at like what the rest of your body was doing? Did they only like look at just your pelvic floor, like a very myopic approach? And usually by just probing for some of those mm-hmm. answers for someone, they came to the conclusion that, oh, there was like something missing from my pelvic floor therapy. And then I'll try and guide them on how to find a good pelvic floor therapist or find someone who's going to get you back to the level that you want. Yes. I really like that because it's a very practical way of describing a scientific approach where you're just kind of like, okay, your activity doesn't happen in a vacuum where Mm -hmm. when you go into a physical, a physical (laughs) therapist's office of any type of physical therapy, Mm -hmm. you're kind of, you know, you're exercising and isolating like a muscle that needs to be repaired or a joint that Mm -hmm. needs to be strengthened. But it's not the same as like using your arm. And I'm I'm saying arm because everyone can kind of, most people can relate to like having arms. But Mm -hmm. like, you know, if I'm drinking a cup of coffee at home and feeling the shoulder pain, I'm not going to be drinking a cup of coffee at my physical therapist's office. And so the action you know, we have so many muscles in the body that people forget that these like small actions are, they look really different in different settings. Mm -hmm. And so it's not to like you get back home and you're like, oh, that still feels weak. So the approach that you take of, you know, trying to manage functionality based on real life, I Mm -hmm. think is, is so great and so necessary. So you talk about having a couple people that you really look up to and that there aren't that many, Mm -hmm. which I can actually attest to because I've had some family members that needed PT, pelvic floor PT. And it is even in Los Angeles, which is a huge metropolitan area, there's like two that may be great. And Mm -hmm. it's that's a maybe, you know, it's like a question mark because you're kind of like, well, who do you compare this to? When you found these mentors that you really look up to, were they people that you like, is there like a physical therapy like organization that like you became part of after college or did you meet them organically through your career? Are they people that taught you or did you have to seek, seek them out? You really have to seek them out. There's not a good organization. I mean, yes, I'm a part of the pelvic health section of the APTA, which is like the physical therapy association. Um, and I go to conferences for public health and things like that. But in terms of like finding a really great group of orthopedic minded public floor therapists, there's not like a big congregation of yeah. those people. And I'm totally not saying that all public floor therapists aren't good orthopedic therapists. There's just not many who like also have the strength and conditioning background and like the programming side of things of okay how we bridge the gap from rehab exercises to the lifting or the boot camp class Mm -hmm. that you want to do sometimes there's like a gap between the rehab that you're doing and the actual like activity we talked about some of them have courses that I've been able to take um, but I really just did a lot of the searching for them on my own and like I said I think it's becoming 
far more popular now to take an orthopedic approach and like fitness approach to pelvic floor therapy. But like, especially, and I hate saying this, but like some of the classic like research and medical institutions, they're, they're like behind. And I yeah. think we, you can attest to that. Anyone in the medical field can yeah. attest to what's being taught in textbooks is always like 10 or 15 years behind on the actual research. And so you're always having to kind of find your own continuing education and things like that yeah. because you can't rely on what you learned in school to still be super up-to-date or applicable today. Yeah. It's a really great foundation, but like you said, right. first of all, it takes a lot of time to like edit books and like create a new edition. Exactly. And then you think about how quickly our world is moving now. <laughs> like the pandemic was, for lack of a better word, a shit show because you literally were le- like there weren't resources on COVID. Mm-hmm. Like you were learning day by day, step by step. And like physicians were throwing like spaghetti at a wall to just figure out what sticked yeah. and what what stuck? What stuck? What stuck? What stuck? And like, what would help patients? And that those things happen so quickly and rapidly in real time. And mm-hmm. I think that's the only time in modern history where people could really see. And it was frustrating for yeah. a lot of people. Like, oh my god, every day it's a new thing. But that's why it's like there weren't textbooks on it. Like right. the science existed, but like when you're sharing information and learning things so quickly, like those aren't things that make it into textbooks until years and years later. I mean, there are going to be huge learnings and implications mm-hmm. from the medicine of like today, like, and today being like April 20th, mm-hmm. you know, 2023, like that's going to look really different from what ends up in textbooks for a long time. Yeah. So that's a really great point. You do a lot of your teaching. I know, I know you work like locally mm-hmm. and, and treat patients locally in person. But it, it seems to me like a lot of your reach happens online. How did you start to build that for yourself? Did you just like start posting stuff and you felt like really passionate about the feedback you're getting and then it like log rolled into like a career and a class and stuff? Like tell, tell me about that because it's a great resource. Yeah, I started, I created my account two years ago. I think it's not even two years old at this point as that's insane <laughs> it's, yeah it's truly insane so this like coming october will be my second yeah. anniversary of having it social oh media but it started just as a way to a like kind of give my patients more information mm-hmm. as a quick like reference to be like oh like i remember she talked about this in our session here's like a quick reminder or a way for my patients to share with like other friends or moms like hey maybe you should check out public floor therapy and just a way also to sometimes let my friends know what I do. They're kind of like, what is pelvic floor therapy? And it's hard to just describe what pelvic floor therapy is in like an elevator pitch. It's really, really hard to yeah. do because there's so much that goes into it. And you almost have to do so much explanation of what people have an idea of, oh, pelvic floor therapy. It just means yeah. they're doing like a pelvic floor exam on me the entire time. It's, you know, it's all internal work, you know there's a lot of education has to go into what it is. And so that's kind of why I created the account so people could get a full picture of what actually pelvic floor therapy is. Yeah, never created my account with the thought that, oh, it's going to blow up and oh, I'm going to have these courses that people are going to be doing. I 
was just like, oh, maybe like it'll help me get some more patients in person. But even if it doesn't, like it's just great to educate people. And yeah, I never expected it to take off the way it has. I think it helped that I got pregnant during that time and just started documenting what I was doing for myself. Like, mm-hmm. here's some core exercise I'm doing on, I'm doing for myself. Here's a strength workout that I'm doing. And people were always amazed to see, you know, someone 37 weeks like back squatting, not saying that everyone has to, but we're so used to seeing like a fragile mindset around pregnancy and postpartum that it was just like people were interested. And so I think Mm -hmm. that also helped to grow things because people were just like, I want to do what you're doing. Like you look like you're thriving in pregnancy. I want that. Can you program workouts for me? Can you do X, Y, and Z? And so then naturally I just started filming and writing down what I was doing and put it out to the world. There was not like a huge plan for it. It was just people ask for a resource and you gave it to them. You gave the people what they want. I really love that this came to be, this came to fruition so organically because I was, I don't even know how I found your account. I was probably targeted and was like, this is like actually legitimate. Like Mm -hmm. I usually, you know, people send me things all the time. They use me as a resource for like the things that they're going, you know, Anytime you're a healthcare provider in mm-hmm. a family, I feel like everyone's like, oh, hey, so like, what do you think about this? Oh, and yeah. this came out of my butt. Like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, look, I'm <laughs> really far away. I don't think I can help you with that. Yeah. But I will try. But I love that this is really, you know, came out of a tailored need for pregnancy that you started this out of what you were already doing for yourself. So Mm -hmm. it's like, it's a proven track record right there. Like you're not going to give somebody something that you're not practicing yourself. Mm -hmm. And just so our, our listeners know your entire movement through pregnancy course was filmed while you were pregnant. And so the, one of the really cool things that I loved is like when I was looking for, I I've historically been really active. Fitness is a huge part of my life. I believe that like, you know, being strong, emotionally, mentally, physically is really just as important as going annually to your doctor for a checkup. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't work unless you're practicing it. So I move as often as I can. And when I got pregnant, I was like, wow, things are definitely going to look different. Mm -hmm. And how do I safely exercise without hurting myself or going like too gung-ho? Like Mm -hmm. how do I, basically I wanted to train myself for delivery and like maintain my strength throughout pregnancy. And your course does just that. And you do it day by day. So literally like you log in and, and I don't know if your platforms changed since I had my son seven months ago, but it was like, okay, day 37 of pregnancy or like week Mm -hmm. four of pregnancy. This is what your exercises should look like. Like this is what your warm up should look like throughout this week. Like this is how to reactivate your core gently, mm-hmm. how to stretch out your upper body. Like you really do practice what you preach in that like the warm up is tailored to your entire body. Like it incorporates stretching and incorporates gentle movement. In my head, something that was really cool is like a lot of your moves promote nerve flossing. Mm-hmm. So like you're stretching and it just felt really good. And I could do it all from home and 
I swear you need to hire me to be on your marketing team. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, like I oh realized, my gosh. Like, like, like can I get the recording? No, but I, I, I really did. I really did go through, like I did it every single day almost. And it was easy enough that even on the days that you're tired, you're like, no, this is really going to be supportive to like mm-hmm. the showtime thing, you yeah. know, like when giving birth to my son and you explain it throughout the course, you're like, okay, this is really good for these muscles. Like you don't require a lot of like equipment and stuff. And mm-hmm. so it's it's a really doable, awesome, restorative, like training model that was so helpful. I don't even know if there's a question buried in here. I'm just like <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, just keep it coming. Just keep it coming. Thank you so much. I don't always get yeah. like feedback. I'm not asking people all the time, like, oh, what do you think? What yeah. Do you think? So it's just really nice sometimes to get the feedback. Like, oh, actually, like I know it helped me in my labor. It's really nice yeah. to hear that it helped you and yeah. Yeah. And I've sent it because you do, you focus on, you know, you're very transparent about your journey as a mom. You post your daughter on your account sometimes and how like there was one post you did, which was so real. And I loved it because I was after I had my son, I was trying to figure out like, how do I work out with this like living thing that is usually attached to me yeah. with my boob? But like you do a workout and you like pause and like you breastfeed your daughter mm-hmm. and then you like set her back down and you're like, then she like wakes up or like crawls and you have to like reposition her. It's like mm-hmm. a very real version of life and like how to maintain your health when like there are things going on. Mm-hmm. I love how passionate about all of this you are. And um, can you just like tell us a little bit more about the ethos behind this. Like what drives you to like want to give this tool to people, to women, to I assume like you you primarily practice on women, but is that the case? Like yes, do people I, ask you about your programs now in person? Like Yes, they do. It's funny. Sometimes people are almost embarrassed, like when they're my patient and they will say, I don't mean to like be a stalker or anything, but I actually follow you on Instagram or like, I'm actually doing your course. I'm like, no, that's great. Like, yeah, then this can be a, it'll probably save you a lot of money from not needing to do public school or therapy, like every week or something like that. Granted, if someone wants to train with me, every week or five week, you totally can. It's like no different than what I would have them do. Obviously if someone's in pain, there's more individualized approach, but for just like general prenatal wellness, yeah, so people will do my program while I'm working with them. And it's a great adjunct because I can be like, I know exactly what they're doing. So I can be like, hey, how do you feel about X, Y, and Z? Or, oh, actually, let's switch out this exercise for a different one because you're experiencing some different like pain or something like that. So that's really fun when people are taking my course that I'm actually treating in person. It's It's really fun. I enjoy it. I actually, I'm curious when you started your course Mm -hmm. and you started building that out, what did that look like for you? Because it's, it's busy being a, like a Mm in-person practitioner and then you are a mom. Like, how do you integrate all of this? How do you make it work? Like, how did you make it work? Because your platform is like not janky. It's super sleek. It's (laughs) like it works. Thank you. how do you keep it all going? I I know your mom's in this like scenario somewhere. You're like, well, mama four yeah. is my example. But, Literally. Um, yeah. She did it all. So I've just always known that there's a way to do something. And she like just such, such a high standard for things. Like I said, not yeah. like forcing me to do it by 
but just through her actions of everything she did was a very high standard. And so I just kind of adopted that throughout life. But it was easier to do the pregnancy program because I did not have a child to care for other than the yeah. one inside of my belly. So I was working, you know, full time treating patients. And then when I would come home, you know, I didn't have a child to care for. So I could work on the program and the programming of it. So also the programming was relatively easy because it was just my workouts. I didn't really yeah. have to change it. So I was just, I would write my workouts for the week. And then at the end of like each month, I would reflect back on it and be like, okay, can I make this easier to do at home for someone and, and, you know, make small little tweaks, but it was really easy to, I don't want to say really easy. It's still a lot of work. It's basically two full-time yes. jobs to do the pregnancy one. And then the filming of it, you know, I just did it on the weekend. I just took up my weekend time because once again, I have a child to care for other than one of my baby in my belly. And I just remember those, I took the, the very last day of filming that I did I was like 36 weeks pregnant and I just remember being mm -hmm. like so tired and so exhausted <laughs> I was like I gotta finish this I just gotta finish it and then yeah. all of the editing and everything went on for the end of pregnancy and then it did you do all the editing yourself no luckily I did not that was one thing okay I was gonna say because you have these videos that accompany yeah it, it's a very comprehensive course. Yes. Like <laughs> that was one thing I was pretty like dead set on from the beginning was like, I'm not going to do any of the editing. So the pregnancy course, one of my really good friends, my husband played football at Vanderbilt and one of his best mm -hmm. friends is married to Sean Johnson. Um, mm -hmm. And who's yep. the Olympic gymnast. Amazing. We're super close. And so they actually, you know, they have their whole online space and sphere and you know videos and editors so they were like hey this is amazing what you're doing like we want to help you and so they helped with all the editing and putting it together and they helped to promote it for the first couple of months like just super awesome amazing people and then so that's you know how all the editing and stuff happened like it would not have happened if they had it been like hey we want to help you but then naturally I put it out into the world like I had Ava, my little girl, in April and then released the pregnancy course in June. And then naturally people were like, we want a postpartum one. So that one was a lot harder to work on because yeah. I had a newborn and I was trying to like rehab myself and focus on myself, learn how to be a mom, a first time mom, and then also try and create this resource for individuals to begin right away postpartum. So that one took is is taking longer like I'm still I I have a movement to early postpartum program for the first six weeks I'm actually releasing mm -hmm. six more weeks at the end of the month for it so that one's taking longer just because now I am a mom and it's you know some days I can spend a lot of time working on it and other days I'm with my baby mm -hmm. all day mm -hmm. so having a child throws a whole nother loop into it but when you're just really passionate about it, it doesn't really feel like work honestly I just get excited yeah. to work on something and you know I still outsource the filming and editing because I know I don't have the bandwidth for that and but it's just really fun to like listen to it all and put it all together and I just really just love watch it, it come so, to yeah life. it's like yeah. not I don't know it's not super difficult to do like yes it's very time consuming but I just love it so much <laughs> 
Yeah. I like how you make that distinction too, because the things we love, like it's, it's not that they're not difficult to do. Like if I was like, okay, today I'm going to start a movement through postpartum course, Mm -hmm. like impossible feat. But like you said, because this is something that you practice daily, that you really, really enjoy, that you're passionate about doing yourself and then sharing with other people, it makes it not feel like work. And I think it's really impressive because you downplay yourself a little bit Mm -hmm. by saying it's like so easy. It's really not. Pregnancy is a gauntlet. And (laughs) yes, by being by being active every day, it's like it's the the daily movement and just taking it one day at a time is a really good way of getting through it. Because when you look at it in retrospect, it's 40 weeks of Mm -hmm. sometimes more, sometimes less. But it's basically a year, you know, yeah. you're, you're trying to get pregnant or you do get pregnant. And then afterwards, mm-hmm. like God willing, if everything lines up and you have a great pregnancy and a baby, it's, it's a full year just of that part of it. And so it's really cool that you were able to do this while you're pregnant with Ava by essentially habit stacking what you were already doing mm-hmm. and like adding on to that and just making it come to life out of just sheer passion, you know, and you talk about leaning on your resources and having people that support you, which is fantastic. But let's be really clear, like you are so passionate about what you do and you created this really incredible tool in less than two years and while you were pregnant. Like that's a huge feat. Like that's why people were supporting you. It wasn't that you it wasn't that you exist because of other people. It's that they supported you because what you're doing is truly, truly valuable. Thank you. That is like something that's really hard for me to ever I don't know. I feel like all females are like this. We just like to fly under the radar, you know? Yeah, just underplay it. <laughs> Especially for a fourth child who like you're like, when I'm at home, like right. I'm gonna yeah. back and I gotta do something really incredible yeah. to like outshine the rest. And so I'm like, Oh yes. no, this is just the course it that was I put that together. Thing. Pregnancy. Yeah, it's just this little thing. Oh, that thing? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's huge. It's huge. And um, there's a reason that I, I tell my patients, I tell my friends, because it's really applicable. So you are a mom. Ava is under a year, right? She like, just she, turned one. She just turned one. Just oh, yeah, it's one. April. Yes. Oh, my God. I know. She oh just turned one. Actually, yeah, like 12 days ago now. It went by so fast. Oh my gosh, happy birthday to both of you. Thank you. Was that super emotional? I like it was. It was really emotional. I think it was more emotional too because I had like hundreds of thousands of people on the internet who've like been following me (laughs) since I was pregnant. So they were all so emotional too. They're like, I swear you were just pregnant. Like I've watched you this whole time, like to see everything like unfold over that time. It was just like big and emotional because not only did I have Ava, but I like started my business all within this like same time period. So it was just a lot of emotions flowing. (laughs) It's actually, it's such a beautiful thing that you get to share with your daughter, like for the rest of your life, because your entire pregnancy was documented in this physical journey. Mm -hmm. And it's, I hope that she reflects on this one day. I hope she listens to this podcast (laughs) and that she's like, my mom is an utter badass. And also, like, she gets to watch every day of her early, you know, life with you. So cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And she, you know, I hope that this 
time spent talking to you this morning really lifts the veil on how much goes into something like Mm -hmm. this. Like you do it with such grace and with, you know, this real steady knowledge that's really inspiring. And, you know, this isn't, hasn't obviously been without difficulty or without challenge. Like you've definitely balanced everything. And, um, is there like one big thing that you do or just like something that you give yourself that allows you to maintain this every day? Because as we know from, you know, our own lives, I'm sure anybody like who has a cell phone and social media, like it can be quite exhausting. So mm-hmm. you're a mom, you're a businesswoman, you're an educator, you're still practicing pelvic floor PT, like in real mm-hmm. life, like yes. in a, a real yes. building with real people. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you like take a step back and just give back to yourself and make sure that this is maintainable and sustainable? That is the really hard part because there's so many times social media, you know, I think everyone can feel this way. It's just, it's overwhelming. It's exhausting. It's too stimulating. You just want to step away from it all. And there are times where I do, I really try like to not post, put pressure on myself to post any reels or anything on the weekends. Like I just, if I happen to share a story, I'm usually with Ava or something like that. Um, But so that's kind of one way is I try and make the weekends just no pressure. You set a little boundary. Yeah. I'm posting anything. And then honestly, like practicing with patients in real life is my escape. Um, It's not like, I don't want to say escape because I don't want to say like it's something that I'm being imprisoned by, but that's what I truly love is like sitting one-on-one with someone Mm -hmm. and like hands-on with them. And so that kind of helps to keep my passion flowing because I get to still see people. And I feel like if I didn't have that and only did online stuff, I could see things getting like exhausting or something along those lines because I'm a firm believer that humans like need connection and community. Um, So yeah, trying to set some weekend boundaries, still treating patients. And then, you know, I have a small group that I'm a part of that we meet every two weeks with some of my closest female friends. And that really helps as well. Um, talk about everything under the sun. Um, so it creating those like communities and boundaries has been really helpful to allow me to keep doing what I like to do. I love that. So if there's one thing that you want to really impart to your audience, what is that like message? What do you try and make come across in your work no matter what? Well, so I have like kind of two audiences. One is some are physical therapists, kind of the way that I look up to other PTs, like they kind of, you know, mm-hmm. want to learn from me. So for if I'm speaking to other physical therapists that are um, watching me, it's like, don't be afraid to change your mind or say you were wrong or, you know, go a new path. Um, because that was me. I never expected to be a public floor physical therapist. And that's the key to being a great practitioner is like being okay with not knowing the answer or trying to figure it out. Like no one knows everything. And I think sometimes if you go into something being like, Oh, I know the answer. And that's a hundred percent it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. You can kind of get yourself in a rut. So for like my PTs who follow or other practitioners, like don't be afraid to question, change your mind, things like that. 
all the women who are pregnant, postpartum that follow me. Um, I would say one of the things I want to let them know is that you're always changing. It's almost like the same. You're always changing as well. And it's okay to have different seasons of life, especially with your fitness, where maybe you're killing it one day and you're consistent and you're going about it and life is great. And then another season of life, you're only able to work out like once a week or do your rehab like once a week that's okay to have those fluctuations. I think a lot of people, especially regarding fitness and public floor therapy, feel like they need to be on top of it all the time. Like it's an all or nothing thing. And it is not all or nothing. Pelvic floor therapy, pregnancy, postpartum fitness doesn't have to be all or nothing. Something is better than nothing. You know, I saw this great reel. I forget who, who it was or what it applied to. But it was like, if we applied the all or nothing approach that we do for fitness into other activities, and it was a mom who like got in bed and was like, oh, only two hours? Well, guess I'm not going to sleep and just got out of bed right away. Like not even going to try and sleep two hours because eh, it's not everything or um, like loading the dishwasher. Like, oh, I'm just not going to clean any of the dishes because I, I you know, whatever, don't have time to do it all. Yeah. So I'm not even going to clean one. And I thought that was like kind of genius because I think sometimes we yeah. just pressure ourselves to be like perfect all or nothing. And that is not motherhood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that motherhood that's for sure. All. And that's just not, you know, fitness, even if you're never a mom, never plan to become a mom, that's just not fitness in general. Like something is better yeah. than nothing. Or life, you know. Yeah, or life, exactly. Know, most people have dishes, like <laughs> yep. better to clean one than than nothing. Exactly. Well, I'm looking at the time and I know I can't keep you forever, even though I wish I could. This has been really, really fun for me because, you know, like I said, it's something that I've done myself. Mm -hmm. It's something that as an, an educator myself, I provide as a resource to other people. You're so timely with everything. And it, it's really incredible just to see how you've built this island, this like paradise <laughs> island or like women who need to exercise, to strengthen, to rehabilitate. And, you know, I think it's applicable, not even just for women or for pregnancy, but for everyone, oh, you yeah. know, everyone has every, anyone who has a pelvic floor. Anyone. So I, I appreciate the way that you teach people how authentic you are and how thorough you are. So even though I can't keep you for forever, we're <laughs> gonna, you know, I'm gonna like let you go soon. One of the things we do at the end of each of our episodes is we do something called the fast five, mm -hmm. just to kind of, it's kind of like shaking off the main treat. It's five quick questions, no pressure to answer, like with long form answers. Mm -hmm. It should just be quick and easy. You are going to hate me because I'm so, <laughs> I'm, I'm so interested in this. Let's get started. My first question mm -hmm. is what is your pelvic floor PT elevator pitch? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh it's one that I don't have all people have pelvic floors it is just another muscle in your body so you want to take care of it just like the rest of your body no I think that's great <laughs> I think that's fantastic okay number two do you have like a favorite morning routine or something to kind of set off your day yes I'm a huge fan of Huberman Dr. Huberman and if you haven't listened to him, he is a neuroscientist who's 
amazing. Just go listen. Yes. Um, so morning routine is I usually like to try and get outside, drink water, do a workout if I'm able to. Usually their order is actually water, workout, get outside. Yeah. Before Ava wakes up. That does not happen every day. So just want people to know that is my goal. It probably happens 75% of the time. Okay. Awesome. Do you have a favorite exercise to teach? I like teaching hinge movements like a deadlift or a single leg deadlift, a hip thrust, because most people are doing it wrong. And so I like to get that aha moment when they're like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be feeling or that's how it's supposed to look. So selfishly, I like it because usually most people are doing it wrong and I like to fix it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is actually really hard to do a hinge movement properly, especially like a one-legged. Yeah. <laughs> you have you have some of those in your course I when I was doing <laughs> with like a belly. I was like, wow, this is tricky. <laughs> mm-hmm, sure is, but they're great. Uh, any guilty pleasures? Like you, you live such a, a healthy, like vibrant life. Like What's your dirty little secret? Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a huge sweet tooth. Huge, oh. huge sweet tooth to the fact of I had cavities on my baby teeth. Like oh. I, granted, I take such great care of my teeth now. Yes. But you have beautiful teeth. Thank you. I just went to the dentist yesterday and, you know, for the same thing. <laughs> but I have a very big sweet tooth to the fact of we probably have ice cream or by we, I mean me and then my husband will just come along for the ride. Um, like three or four times a week. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I just correct myself as we all the time. Mm-hmm. And like, if I'm at work, I'm like, oh, by we, I just, and I'm like sitting yeah, I'm like, oh, and like, I guess me. they just meet themselves. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Sweet too. My husband says I gave that to Ava because she loves sweets too. Oh, of and course. so, yeah, I'm big sweet girl. You are very sweet. <laughs> so number five, how do you quickly reset? Like in the midst of craziness, like your daughter's screaming, social media is popping off. Like what do you do to just be like, I need a second? Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm able to catch myself before I have a meltdown, it's usually get outside. I'm always <sighs> feeling best when I'm outside And it's usually being active outside, like chasing my dog around the backyard because you can't think of anything else other than the running that you're doing or the chasing or like going out to a park or something like that. I mean, I grew up, like I said, being outside all the time with horses and so I'm playing sports. So I think that's just naturally a great place for me. But yeah, sometimes I don't make it to that point and I just have full on crying meltdown. So that's okay too. (laughs) And that's okay too. If that happens to you. Yeah. It's okay. Like I do cry when Ava cries sometimes. So, <laughs> Aww. yeah, me too. <laughs> I love that. And thank you for being so transparent and so real about everything. I love what you're doing. And I love that you live it too. Like even down to your reset, it's that like the physical movement is kind of the unlock to mm-hmm. the rest of life. Always of well. Yeah. Like I always feel best when I'm moving. Yes. We have one final question that we ask all of our guests. Um, It's sort of longer and more tender, but we like it because our whole goal when we talk to our guests is to reconnect ourselves with like our younger selves Mm -hmm. and to appreciate and celebrate, you know, the journey that it takes to get to who we are today. Mm -hmm. So what is one quality that you had as a young woman that you might not have taken pride in at that time, but that you look at now and you really appreciate? 
I mean, maybe it was holding myself to high standards. I think I put a, too much pressure on myself growing up to the point that I don't recommend, you know, that's how children should grow up. However, it has helped in terms of being able to manage a business working as a practitioner. It's a very, it's a very dangerous slope there of holding yourself to high standards and saying, oh, that's a good thing. Because I think there are so many instances in which if you are not able to gain a new perspective on, oh, okay, I don't need to hold myself so high at standards. Like if you don't ever reach that conclusion into adulthood, then it can be detrimental. But luckily I was able to reach some of those conclusions before it became a detriment. And I'm like, okay, now I can actually kind of appreciate it because I, I'm not as in it. In it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I would say that's one thing that it was annoying, honestly, growing up because I would get so <laughs> annoyed at myself if I ever got, you know, a bad grade yeah. or something like that. But learning to have like pride in your work and like always try and put your best foot forward, I think really has helped me as an adult. And I'm glad that I've come down just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate that answer. I don't think we've heard that before. And I think it's really real. I think a lot of really successful women do hold themselves to an incredibly high standard. And it's a theme throughout life. But Mm -hmm. my hope is that our listeners who have come along this, this morning journey with us and have gotten to hear your path to success, understand that there's a balance that gets created Mm -hmm. and it doesn't happen in a vacuum and you can do it all and it doesn't have to be done perfectly because real life is real life Mm -hmm. and you can create this huge success and share things authentically and still be a mom and still practice doing what you love and still have moments where you melt down and cry and have to go outside with your dog. hundred like, percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I will say like, if I still ha- held myself to those incredibly high standards today, I probably wouldn't have a course out because I would want it to be so perfect and mm-hmm. would feel like a failure if I ever had to make a change to it. I've changed that course so many times, not like hugely, but I've made little tweaks. Yeah. Every month I'm making little tweaks to it. And so like I said, coming down, being able to come down from those super high standards has allowed me to be like, okay, I'm going to put this out to the world. It doesn't not need to be A++++ material yes. because people will still appreciate it and, you know, it doesn't need to be perfect. Yes. If the value's there, just do it. Yes, exactly. And there's definitely value. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I loved talking to you so much. I was a total fangirl, obviously. Can you, before we sign off, can you tell our listeners where to find you? What you, you know, you already told us you have a course coming out at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. So tell us where to go. Yes. So all things for me, all updates always can be on my website. I try and keep everything on my website. So drmahews.com is where I have my courses listed. I have a, a pretty extensive blog to try and give free resources to people. And that's where you can find all things me. I do have, you know, Instagram, doc, dr. Mayhews, 
TikTok, that sort of thing. But like my website, my newsletter via my email is really special to me because a I can just give a, a bigger story. And then yeah, at the end of this month, so technically not a new course, I'm just adding six more weeks to the postpartum mm-hmm. one to kind of get you through the fourth trimester, that I call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find all things Mayhew's. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Until next time, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this just as much as I did. And thank you, Dr. Hughes, for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?